Hello and welcome to The Planet Today, where we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy. It is Friday, October 6th, 2023. I'm your host, Matt Norton, here with producer and co-host extraordinaire, Nick Janusa. Nikki, how are we feeling, buddy? Matty, I am back on top of the world. Uh, I've made a full... Almost recovery. I still have this nagging cough that just kind of won't go away. But other than that, I'm I'm feeling so much better. It's it's crazy. I'm appreciating everything that I couldn't do before so much more. Like simple things in my life. Yeah, I I hear you. I remember when I had the flu last year. I it was right after I ran the marathon. So like yeah, sick brag. If anyone's a new listener to the podcast, I ran the New York State <laughs> Marathon. Um, but I went from running like many many miles a week to oh my gosh, I have the flu. I can't do anything. And at first it was yeah. like, whatever, like I need to take some time off anyway. And then I just went for like a one mile walk when my lungs were recovering. And I was like, oh my God, I missed, I missed this crisp air. I missed yeah. these leaves. Dude, just the basic stuff. You're like, this is amazing. Like, thank you for this beautiful sunny day that I can get outside and actually do something. Yeah. And you know what people yeah. are going to be saying in about 30 minutes at the end of the show? Thank you for this beautiful Sunny podcast. Time for our quick hits for the week. And the first one is by Damian Carrington, who writes, Slow route to net zero will worsen global climate crisis. IPCC chief warns for The Guardian. The International Panel on Climate Change said that the climate crisis will get worse even if we reach net zero by 2050 if we continue to take a slow route to get there. The IPCC is composed of thousands of scientists across the world and gives climate advice to the 195 countries that came together to create the IPCC in the first place. The new chair of the organization, Jim Skia, discussed Rishi Sunak's decision to scale back environmental measures that Nick and I actually spoke about on last week's show. If you missed it, scroll back two episodes, and we talked about it last Friday. Um, anyway, Skia said, We don't comment on individual countries' policies, but the more gas and oil you add to the reserves, the greater percentage you would need to leave in the ground to stay within carbon budgets. He also added, what determines global warming is not the timing of net zero, but the pathway by which you get there. It's more about continuously reducing emissions than it is about reducing net zero by December 31st, 2049. Speaking of the decision by UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, the article mentions that analysis from Carbon Brief concluded his actions throw the UK even further off course from its legally binding emissions targets, and some actions will actually cost British consumers more in energy bills. Yeah, so a couple things there. I think the main thing to hit on is exactly what you said. It's more about reducing emissions than it is about just getting to this magical number. And and the way that I kind of think about it is, you know, one of our friends, he's been on the show many times, Dan Walsh wrestled in high school and If you have any friends as a listener that were wrestlers, you know that they often have to make weight right before a big wrestling meet. And in order to do that, 
it's a lot easier for them to maintain their their weight than it is for the day beforehand. All of a sudden, you are not drinking any water. You're dehydrating yourself. You're ruining your body just to make weight. Bring out the trash bags. Exactly, exactly. Getting in the sauna and trying to sweat as much as possible. Like That's what I equate this to. We can work to make weight over the next 27 years, or we can make things really, really, really hard on ourselves by not doing anything or, or doing things slowly. And then all of a sudden in the last 10, five years, whatever it is, we have to rapidly fix things. And it's just not going to work because of the damage that we have done to the earth or in my analogy, the damage we have done to our body. Yeah. I, I love that analogy. I, I think it's extremely relevant for, for this exact situation. Um, it's a, it's a hell of a lot easier to try and, like you said, maintain the weight, do it more gradually rather than at, put at the end the hour, putting in all that effort, putting in all those, these last minute bills that like might not go through or might go through. Like it's just not going to work. So we have to, we have to do it gradually. We need to stop. Like I said, last week, kicking the can down the road, um, because it's not going to do us any good, uh, in the long run. Yeah. It's, it's our problem now. It's been our problem for 20 years. It's not something where we can say, this is somebody else's problem. You know, they'll address this when the problem gets bad. The problem has been bad. The time to fix it. It's not now it's 20 years ago. It's 10 years ago at the you know very least, but no, we should have been working on this. The other thing that I wanted to mention kind of in that same vein is that the, the quote at the end from the article where it says that UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak's uh, decisions to roll back environmental measures might actually cost British consumers more in energy bills. Um, two things I want to say about that. One, how fortunate are we that it's now a point where like rolling back environmental measures is not environment or is not economically smart. You know, we're not choosing between, Hey, we can safeguard the environment or we can lower electricity bills. It's both like we need to be shifting to more carbon free electricity. And that quote kind of highlights that to me. The other thing that I want to say is it just seems so short sighted to say, Hey, we're going to, stop implementing energy efficiency standards or, you know, whatever other example we want to use. And that's going to save us money in the short term. Like we need to stop thinking about the short term. This is not a short term problem. This is a problem that we have made worse over the last 120 years. And it's not something that's going to get fixed overnight. So it takes a long-term solution to fix a long-term problem. I think most people understand that. Um, mm-hmm. unfortunately it seems like we can't say the same for Rishi Sunak, but we got a big, big climate negotiation coming up next month with cop 28. Maybe the things that were just rolled back can be put back in place. Uh, once we get at the international stage. Yeah, we're, we're hoping for that. We're hoping it gets reinstated. Um, and we will definitely be sure to cover cop 28 on this podcast as we always do. Yeah, that's when we do our best work. Yes, that, that's one of the best weeks of the year. So let's get right into our next story from The Hill, where Alejandra O'Connell-Domenic writes, Survey says over 70% of Americans paid higher power bill due to summer's extreme heat. If you listen to our show over the past three months or kept up with the news in general, or if you just stepped outside your house, you probably <laughs> noticed that this year was the hottest summer on record. 
So a new survey by Bankrate found that 72% of Americans paid a higher electricity bill this summer, which can be attributed to that extreme heat resulting in more energy usage for things like air conditioners. 57% of the participants felt that they incurred an extra cost because of the extreme weather over the last decade. And that also includes hurricanes, wildfires, and tornadoes. Ted Rossman, a senior industry analyst for Bankrate, said, Unfortunately, extreme weather events are a significant drain on Americans' finances, and they seem to be getting more common. As a reminder, extreme weather events are becoming more common and more powerful due to climate change. Yeah, I mean, not really much to add to this story. Um, it's it's good that 72% of Americans like understand the correlation here. Um, it sucks that our electricity bill is going up. Uh, I know in New York State specifically, like Con Ed, our utility provider for New York City um, and a few of the neighboring counties, they are going to be raising their electric rates by close to double over the next two years. So it's it's not going to get magically better. You know, we should expect to pay more for our electrical bills. The issue is as the climate continues to warm, right, as cities get hotter, we're going to be using our air conditioners more. It's just it's just a fact. I saw that earlier this summer, there were states um, in the South that had a bunch of different cities experiencing a wet bulb temperature of over 94 degrees. And what that means is that people are going to die because even if you're in the shade, even if you're in the water, it's going to be too hot. Your body's going to get dehydrated. So that's going to become more commonplace. The only way to remedy that is to be in an air-conditioned building. The air conditioners themselves are causing this problem where you know we're using more fossil fuels right now to power the air conditioners that cool our homes. Until those become 100% carbon-free electricity, every time we need to use the air conditioner, and like I said, in some cities, it's a need. It's not a want. Every time we need to power those, we are going to contribute to the same problem that then causes us to have to use those air conditioners in the first place. So it's this rigorous feedback loop that unfortunately, like I said, is not going to get better until we get fossil fuels out of the equation. Yeah, it's it's a it's a brutal feedback loop like you're talking about. So rough. Yeah. All right. Time for this week's environmental policy roundup. A farm in Arizona is used to grow alfalfa to be exported to Saudi Arabia to be fed to their dairy cows. I know it sounds like a very complex chain there. It is. Alfalfa is extremely water intensive and Arizona is extremely dry. So the state is moving to immediately end that lease with three other leases set to expire in February not being renewed. Saudi Arabia banned growing alfalfa and other green fodder crops domestically in 2018 to relieve some of the pressure on the kingdom's water resources. And for that reason, started to outsource it to other locations. In this case, the very dry Arizona growing a very water-intensive crop, you tell me. Governor Katie Hobbs said this move would protect the water future of Arizona. Switzerland and the United States donated $8.4 million to Brazil's Amazon Fund, which aims to end deforestation of the Brazilian Amazon. The Amazon Fund was created in 2008 to prevent, monitor, and combat deforestation while promoting sustainable development. It was initially funded by a $1 billion donation from Norway and $68 million donation from Germany. Dish Network has received a $150,000 fine from the Federal Communications Commission, or FCC, for its failure to move an old satellite far enough away from others that are still being used. 
DISH was supposed to move the satellite 186 miles further away from Earth, but had only moved it 76 miles by 2022 before it lost fuel. This is the first time the FCC has issued a fine for space debris, albeit a relatively minor one compared to DISH Network's overall value. I just want to touch on the first one really quick. Um, Arizona, growing alfalfa in, in Arizona. Uh, this is something that should have just been outlawed or, or you know, moved, canceled the lease, whatever you want, um, five years ago. Because like we were having water issues in, you know, California, Colorado, all like Arizona, that region. And anyone that's getting water basically from the Colorado River, like we've had these water issues for so long and to have us growing alfalfa and then we ship it across the world. So then you're thinking about all the emissions for just like just transportation alone to Saudi Arabia to then feed their cows. It just seems like completely wacky and like there's no sense to it whatsoever. Yeah. I mean, I guess the only sense of it is like crown prince Mohammed bin Salman has an insane net worth. Like I, I, I don't know what it is, but whatever it was, like you know that they were probably paying that farm so much money. Yes. Um, that they were able to basically not care. And thankfully, the state has stepped in and said, absolutely not. You do need to care about this and you need to stop. Yeah. And we always talk too about how water intensive alfalfa is. Like, and that we, we should just like even stop growing it here for like our own cows and stuff. We've talked about that on the pod too, like what we could use to to better um, feed our our cows and stuff too. So, yeah, we're big kelp and seaweed and algae guys because it's a little bit more expensive, but it also reduces the methane emissions um, when they digest the food. Yeah. Last note: Nick and I are firmly in opposition to accepting Saudi oil money for this podcast. We will not be sponsored by MBS. No need to call us heroes. That's just what you expect out of the TPT boys. It really is. It's <laughs> what you've grown to love about us. And we would never take such a gross, gross fee. Probably would be ridiculous. But no, we're not going to take it. We're not going to do it. Not even once. <laughs> Maybe once. Just kidding. Not even once. As always, those three stories are in your show notes. If you want to go read them for more detail, we are going to take a quick break. we got two more stories for you when we get back. Today's episode of The Planet Today is brought to you by Valo Alta. Valo Alta's Everyday Handkerchief is a high-performance daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings, from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valalta.co and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A.co and code TPT. Welcome back 
to the planet today, folks. Next up, facing increasing pressure from customers, some miners are switching to renewable energy. By Victoria Milko and Dita Alangankara of the Associated Press. For any of you who just listened to our podcast and don't read the headlines in your show notes, that is miners, M-I-N-E-R-S, not like young children. This story is mostly about a processing facility on the island of Sulawesi in Indonesia, where 75,000 tons of nickel are produced every year to eventually be used in batteries, electric vehicles, appliances, and more. This plant runs entirely on hydroelectricity, which is estimated to reduce the greenhouse gas emissions by 1.115 million tons of CO2 per year compared to using diesel to power the facility. Mining accounts for 4 to 7% of global greenhouse gas emissions, but some miners are moving to lower their own emissions in extracting and refining as consumers demand more sustainable supply chains overall. This can help make renewable energy and other green technology greener over its lifetime, with less emissions generated to produce what goes on to become carbon-free technology. The article also shouts out other companies and countries around the world that are reducing their use of fossil fuels in their mining operations. Solar plants in Chile help power the mining sector, which consumes much of the country's electricity demand to produce copper, lithium, and other materials. In recent years, wind power has helped electrify the Ragland mine in Canada. This makes me excited because, and I want to use solar energy as an example here, no carbon is produced in the generating of electricity, but creating those panels that get used in the solar arrays, that creation creates emissions. So if you start to power mining facilities with solar or wind, you know, eventually if it's 100%, you have you have carbon-free mining facilities. Then you create the solar panels at facilities that are powered by solar or wind. So you have carbon-free production. Then those products that are produced create more carbon-free electricity. That's how we start to reach this carbon-free society. So it sounds simple, like, oh, if we just take step one of the supply chain and decarbonize it, the rest works itself out, but like it does. Like as soon as we get fossil fuels and greenhouse gas emissions out of step one, it becomes easier to get step two and three and four and five of that supply chain carbon free. Feel free to rain on my parade here, but I feel like the perfect analogy here and the way my brain is able to understand this is a barber going to get his hair cut. Yeah. And I mean that in the sense that like this is this is basically like a mining facility that's basically trying to get like, you know, nickel and all this stuff for, for electric vehicles and stuff. They can't do it without being pr- like processed by or they're trying to get <clears throat> make them themselves more efficient and more carbon free by using renewables. So it's like it's like a renewable energy plant trying to be more renewable almost (laughs) it's a feedback loop where yes if you use your product on yourself eventually you can create more product that is carbon free there we go good okay yeah (laughs) i had to get that out i had all i had to get that all out so i'm glad i did hey that's good that's what we're here for people people come to the show to get the news and to get some smart analogies and to hear (laughs) us work things out in real time (laughs) and i hope that if i work it out in real time maybe it helps other someone else out there uh realize it too so that's that's always nice too the amount of stuff that we have to clip from this podcast where i'm just thinking out loud oh my gosh (laughs) 
you as the listeners would be very shocked. You'd be amazed. <laughs> All right, let's get into our last quick hit of the week, and it's from NPR, where the NPR network published, It's Not All Bad News, Wonderful and Wild Stories About Tackling Climate Change, as part of NPR Climate Week, which goes from October 2nd to October 8th. Yes, happy NPR Climate Week, Nick. Yeah, happy NPR Climate Week. All right, we figured we would close this show out with some positive news, and luckily, NPR Climate Week did our job for us. So what we're going to do is list off each headline. There's 11 of them. If any of these are interesting to you, click the link in your show notes. It's going to be the last one down at the bottom. You can read more. We're going to talk about a few of them. Each story is like two or three paragraphs, so go check this one out. 2023 is on track to be one of the largest pink salmon runs in Washington's Puget Sound in the past decade. Restoration contractors in California and Oregon will plant nearly 19 billion native seeds as part of efforts to restore land along the Klamath River that is currently dammed. There's a new, more sustainable variety of avocado. Farmers in Pakistan are trying to make a baby glacier. Tesla is building a drive-in movie theater EV charging station in Los Angeles. Love that. A handful of coral rescued near Miami spawned in a hatchery lab in August. This haunted house in Philly is terrifying and an adaptation to flooding. This Texas Girl Scout troop is tackling water conservation by doing everything other troops do, but underwater. Conservation programs are working to keep forests in New Mexico healthy and build crew members' connection to the land. A vacant lot outside of Boston has been turned into a quarter-acre food forest. And finally, more than 120,000 acres have just been set aside as a conservation area in Idaho. Yeah, this the Tesla one that's building a drive-in movie theater EV charging station in Los Angeles, that... If anyone has been listening to this podcast, they understand how much we love dual-use land. This is the perfect example of dual-use land. What a great idea to to incentivize people to get themselves in EVs, put these up all over. Because first of all, movie driving movie theaters are just like vanishing. They're, they're not like as, as much around as they were when I feel like we were kids, uh, which is unfortunate because it was a great experience and I still love it. Yeah. And I still want to do it, but it's like, I have to drive like 45 minutes or an hour, um, like to Western, I don't even know. I think Western Massachusetts or something like that. Uh, which isn't worth it for me. So this is a great way to, um, two, two birds, one stone. Simple as that. Yeah, I 100% agree. If you know me personally, you know I'm a huge movie guy. I am an AMC Stubbs A-list member. So Ooh. I think in the last three months, I've spent $75 on my membership and I've seen like 12 movies. So we're talking about, what, 75 divided by 12. I pay like six twenty five a ticket. <laughs> so yes, huge movie guy. I love this, and I love the idea of like, hey, I'm going to go get my car charged, see you in an hour or two, and then, you know, just sit down and watch a movie while you're letting it charge up. Yeah. And I think what's important here, too, is that, like, charging stations are going to get faster. They're always working on ways to improve the existing infrastructure around electric vehicles, but there's always going to be a market for, hey, I don't want to pay the fast charging rate. Let me go sit down, watch a quick hour and 30 minute movie, get my car charged for that cheaper, slower rate. You know, it's a, it's a win-win. Yeah, absolutely. Agreed. 
uh, one that I wanted to bring up was the vacant lot outside of Boston being turned into a food forest. So what the article says here is that unlike community gardens, food forests mimic natural ecosystems, uh, which I think is super cool because it's going to grow the fruits and vegetables and you know native plants that would be grown in this area anyway. So it's basically just this conservation land. In this case, it's a quarter acre um, and it's focusing on the local ecosystem. Anyone in that community can go there and get food for free, but it also helps the local pollinators. You know, your birds, your bees, your hummingbirds, your butterflies, all of these animals and insects that now have a place to call home in a safe area that's going to be continuously protected and it's growing food for local people. Yeah. Yeah. That's what, that's the coolest part is it's growing food for people. Like we took something that was not um, being used for anything important. Wasn't was basically just taking up space at that point. And now it's producing food for people. So that's, that to me is the coolest part about all this. And, and, and like you said too, it's, it's, you know, revitalizing all the local, um, you know, species of plants and, and animals and all that stuff. So that, that's another, uh, just an added bonus. So really cool. Yeah. And then the last one I wanted to bring up was, and it just sounded just so intriguing to me. Um, it's the farmers in Pakistan that are trying to make a baby glacier. So basically, uh, I'll just read from the article basically on what they're doing. So a mountain hydrologist who focuses on Asia's high mountains, Jacob Steiner, says locals retrieve ice from lower down the mountain where it's melting and then you take it up further where it can't melt, he says. So they put it into caves where the ice is shaded from solar radiation and then it's going to rain on top as well. So it's going to freeze. So that ice actually ends up growing. And then he said you can do it basically over seasons because at that elevation, it's never going to melt. So just a really interesting concept. And if they can actually continue to do it, I mean, I guess it's kind of a, um, you have to be in this part of the world type thing yeah. to make it work. Uh, but damn, it, it'd be, it still would be really cool because they are having issues with, with water and, and, and uh, producing water for crops. So, Yeah, it's just one of those fascinating applications of science where like, I know it sounds cliche, but scientists can save the world if you give them the right tools and like give them room to cook. And like in this case, you know, this is a really cool application that granted, I'm not a glacial scientist, but I would have never even considered like, oh, we can we can manufacture a process that grows the glaciers. That is super cool. Yeah, it's insane. And it's backed by the United Nations. So like, you know, take that for what it's worth doing something right. Yeah. Definitely yeah. doing something right. So really cool. All right. If you are interested in those three that we talked about or any of the eight that we didn't talk about, like I said, link is in your show notes. Go check it out and celebrate NPR Climate Week. That's going to do it for today's episode of TPT. We will be back next Friday for another episode. But until then, go give the show a five-star rating and review wherever you can and follow our socials at Planet Today Pod, where now that I have some more free time, I will be posting more often. Um, Nick Janusa produces our show makes all of the music you hear throughout last week your streaming of his soundcloud powered him into recovery <laughs> let's get him past the finish line nick where can people keep up with your stuff you can keep up with me at soundcloud.com slash budland cape and that is b-u-d-l-y-n-c-a-p-e go check me out y'all our logo is made by kaylee Vietz. have a great weekend everybody and we will catch you right here next friday peace